Well, this morning we're going to take a little departure. Uh, we've been in Philippians for several weeks, and my plan, as I believe I even communicated to you last week, was to continue in Philippians and finish it today. But we're going to actually hit the pause button and pick that up again in the new year. And we're going to be in First John this morning. So if you would turn with me to First John chapter four, and we're going to talk about how God's love is revealed to us through the Christmas story. And you know, there are thir- certain themes that you think about naturally at Christmas. Uh, generosity being one, obviously. Uh, joy, peace, hope, and love are kind of those four Advent themes many times that you see churches pick up on, uh, to name a few. And as we approach Christmas this morning, I want us to focus on that theme of God's love. And as we look to the Bible, we're going to see at the heart of the Christmas story is really God's love for humanity. There's really no ex- greater expression of God's love um, than the story of His Son coming into the world to redeem sinners and how God did that. Um, you know, when it, I heard it said uh, several years ago, um, he was my pastor then, but now he's the president of the IMB. David Platt said, in matters of love, one must go himself. And that's a good quote. You know, when I was, uh, when you were a little kid um, and you liked a girl, uh, you would send her a little note and it would say, check yes, check no, do you like me, right? And George Strait even wrote a song about it, made a lot of money. And um, if you don't know who George Strait is, uh, somebody needs to get you a George Strait CD for Christmas. But um, then you take that, um, <laughs> didn't expect to hear that this morning probably, but then you take that uh, and you give it to a friend and then they give it to the girl. You don't give it to the girl yourself. That was elementary school, right? And maybe middle school. And I think you're supposed to outgrow that at some point and I hope I did, but um, you know when I when I when I got engaged to Christy, I didn't send a friend with a note. I didn't send her a text message. I went myself, right? And I got down on one knee and I made the proposal because, as the quote says, in matters of love, one must go himself. And so, when God decided to redeem humanity, He didn't send an angel. Uh, he came Himself. He sent Himself. Uh, which he sent God the Son, right? The Godhead came uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. God came in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God came and laid down his life for us. And it wasn't a picture of the Father looking at the Son and saying, now you're going to go. The Son willingly came and the willingly went, um, accomplishing the will of God, the will of the Father. We're reading this morning from in 1 John, and, you know, 1 John was written by the same guy, John, who wrote Revelation, uh, who wrote Second John and Third John, and who wrote the Gospel of John. Those are the books that he wrote, and there are some commonalities when you read those books, although Revelation just kind of seems like its own deal sometimes. But especially when you're reading John, and then you read First John, Second John, and Third John, those letters, there are a lot of um, similarities. You'll see phrases like being born of God, or born again, or born of heaven, that John really likes that phrase. He uses it very early in John chapter 1. He uses it in John chapter 3, before the famous John 3.16 message. And he uses it in John, 1 John. And he's got a verse that's very similar to John 3.16 that we're going to read this morning in 1 John 4. And so it's very obvious who's writing this, and that it's his language that's being used, and it's him that God's working through. And there were some heretics that he was having to address in 1 John, some people that were deceiving Christians into thinking they weren't really Christians and things like that. And one of the major themes of 1 John is that him writing to a church, telling them what it looks like when somebody's a Christian. Here's the fruit of what it means to be a Christian. Christians do this, and Christians do this, and Christians don't do this. It's very clear things. And him convincing them, you don't need some special anointing, some extra experience or anything like that. You have all you need in Christ Jesus and provided by the Spirit of God. And one of the major themes of 1 John, one of the major fruits that he talks about in the life of the believer is love. 
Um, and the believer is one who loves God. He talks about that. And we're one who loves others. And especially the people of God, the church of God. And that is just bubbles over out of 1 John. This, here's what it looks like to be a believer. And one of the big things that comes out of that is love. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So look with me at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 12 together. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. All right, and this text really breaks apart pretty easily. The first couple of verses there, the first thing we see that I want to point out to you is that God's love changes us. God's love changes us. When you experience God's love, right? When you experience the the reality of Christmas, so to speak, and the story of Christmas in your heart and in your life, it changes you. He says, let us love one another. He's given them a command, right? He says, for love is from God. He's speaking to the unique and supernatural change that takes place in the life of a believer. God is love, and He produces love in the lives of His people. He says um, that God loves. He's always loved. God, you see later on, He uses the phrase, God is love. Not to be mistaken for love is God. It's not, you can't just reverse that around. God's not some inanimate um, feeling. But He's saying God is love, just as God is holy. God is a loving God. And he's saying, because of that, his people, those who are in union with him, who are in fellowship with him, they are loving people because God changes them. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He's saying, not that you are born of God because you love. In other words, if I go out and love enough people, I will be saved. I'll be a Christian and I'll be good enough for God. No, his point is, that is the fruit of you being born of God. He's saying, you want to know how to know who's been born of God? You want to know how to know who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? Well, one of the ways is do they love? Because if they don't love, they haven't been born of God because God is love. God produces love. Love emanates from God. When you look at God, you see someone who's giving of themselves constantly. You see someone who made the ultimate sacrifice to redeem people. That God, when He's in union, when somebody goes into a relationship with them and they're in union with Him through Christ... They don't become a less loving person. They don't not get affected by that. They are radically changed. And one of the key ways is love. Whoever loves has been born of God. They know God. They're in relationship with God. It's very basic logic that John is using. If you have been born again of God, you will love, for He's a loving God. That's why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. That's the same phrasing I told you that John uses. Back and forth, born of God, born again. You might think, well, everyone loves. That seems like a silly proof test. Everyone loves. I mean, who doesn't love somebody? You might not love everybody, but everybody loves somebody. Well, that's not the kind of love he's talking about. Some, some commentators will even point out that, yeah, everybody loves to a certain degree because we're made in the image of God. And so because of that, we can love. We have the capacity to love because we're made in God's image. But we're very flawed and we're very distorted because of the fall. This is a supernatural love, a unique love, and a new love for God and for others, especially for other Christians, that's only produced by the Spirit of God. It doesn't look like just everybody kind of love. 
It, it, it looks different. And John points that out. We'll get to that here in just a minute. So it's a special, unique love. You see, and it's particularly aimed at the church. It's particularly aimed at other Christians. It doesn't mean you don't love everybody because Jesus tells us to even love our enemies. So he's not downplaying that. But he's just pointing out that there is a unique and special love that you begin to have for other Christians when you're a Christian. You, you know, it, when you become a Christian, um, you become a part of the body of Christ. And, you know, and some people, they think, well, I like Jesus and I love Jesus, but I'm really not about organized religion, so I don't really like the church. Well, Jesus is the head, the Bible says, and the Bible says the church is the body. It makes no sense to say, I love the head, not the body, all right? That, that, or, or I love the body and not the head. And those things, they go together. And the Bible paints the picture that way because it wants us to understand something. You, you can't have Jesus and not have his church. You just can't. And so when you come to faith in Christ, you become a part of the church at large. And just as the supernatural indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces a love in your heart for the church, for, excuse me, for, the, for Christ, it will produce that love also for the church. You will have a unique and a new love. Uh, there was a time in my life I couldn't care less about church, right? I didn't want to go to hell, but I didn't want to go to church either, <laughs> you know? Uh, there, was, there had to be a happy medium. That was kind of how I felt about it, right? Maybe that's you. Church was kind of boring to me, if anything, especially as a kid in much of my teen years. And then as I got, was being drawn to Christ and Christ was beginning to work in my life, I was also being tugged towards the church because it was through the church and through the local church that God was working in my life. And so, and ultimately, after I, when I came to know Christ, I look back on my life now, right? I, I love the church, obviously. I, I serve the church, right? It doesn't mean everybody becomes a pastor, but my point is your love for the church changes when you come to know Christ. And when God saves you, he changes you. And one of those changes is new loves. You get new loves in your life. And one of those new loves is for the people of God. And obviously the supreme one is for God himself. The greatest commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. It's love your neighbor as yourself. When you get a new heart, the whole purpose of the new heart is so that you can begin to fulfill the very thing that God says is the greatest thing for you to do. Right? To love God and to love people. So if you don't love God and you don't love people, it makes no sense to claim to have been born of God and to have a new heart. If you've got the same heart that had no love for God or no love for others before, right? So it's just a very basic proof test, right? One of the very basic, these other things John gives us, but this is just one of them that he points out. Because it, life change is at the very heart of what it means to know Christ. Not just in love, but just in general. Life change happens when, you, when you're born of God. Now think about it and connect it to Christmas. And I, I heard a guy point this out this week. I never really thought about it. But every, almost every famous Christmas movie that you love is about life change. I, I listed a few here. The story of Scrooge, right, is about life change. A stingy, mean man. Not very loving, not very generous. He go, undergoes a change. Not because of the Holy Ghost, but because of some weird ghost um, that, that haunt him. And, and he, but he has this life change, right? It's not connected to Christ, not connected to the work of God. But it's just, there's life change that happens at the season of Christmas. The story of the Grinch, which is like the cartoon version, I guess, of Scrooge, right? And uh, he's greedy and grumpy, and he has a tiny heart, and then he's changed uh, not by God, not by the Holy Spirit. If I remember right, I think it's from the songs of Whoville or something, and the, the Whovillians or whatever uh, change his heart. But he becomes a different person, right? He, his nat very nature has changed. It's a wonderful life. 
A man is so depressed that he wants to end his life uh, because he doesn't see the meaning. He, sees, he doesn't see the purpose anymore. And then he had undergoes this life change and he is thankful and he's grateful for his life. And then there's the, the great Christmas classic Elf, right? Um, starring Will Ferrell, right? And there is life change at the center of that story. Whose life changed? The father of Elf, of Will Ferrell, whatever his name is, right? Of Elf is, is changing. He goes from this greedy, grumpy guy who's not very loving even towards his own son to being this different guy. And it's all because I think they, he sees Santa Claus or something, you know? I mean, it's never connected to Jesus, but there's always life change. Now, we know why. Why is it that every great Christmas story, a Christmas movie, is connected to life change? Even some of the comedies and things of that nature. There's some sort of life change. And many times it's about becoming more loving or becoming more generous or something like that. It's because at the very heart of we know this season is the story of the birth of Christ. And that story is about life change and about lives being changed. And so they can take Jesus out of it and they can take the religion out of it. But they can't get away from the compelling nature of the fact of what happens when somebody has their life radically changed. That is at the very heart of, yes, the Christmas story. And it's at the very heart of the gospel. And the reason we experience this kind of change is because God's love is a rescuing love. And that's the second thing I want us to see. God's love rescues us. It doesn't just change us, it rescues us. Look at verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. The, the love of God, he says, was made manifest among us. It sounds very similar to another phrase that John writes in the Gospel of John that you read this morning if you were in a small group. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he says in John 1.14. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This revealing, this manifestation, right? It's in just as the Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, God, who puts on human flesh, in the same way God's love was manifested among us in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the love of God. In Jesus, God the Son becomes a man while still being God to come and save us from our sins. And it says, John's saying that in the gospel, God has come down to us to be among us and to live among us. And in doing that and in seeing that, we see the love of God expressed. So, it's at a time and a point, at a place in history that can be documented, God's love was made manifest among us. That's what he's saying. He said, you don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to think about it. It's not, God's love is not just some feeling out there that you're trying to figure out if there's proof or not. He's saying there's a point and place and time in history where God's love was put to the ultimate test and it has been proven in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work of Jesus Christ. He says, God sent His only Son. He says He sent Him into the world. The Greek word translated here, sent, that Greek word, sent, the noun verb, that's a verb, right? But the noun version of that word is the word we use for apostle. It's the idea of mission, being sent on a mission and with a purpose. And so, there, you know, there's, there's a difference in sending your son away and sending your son away with a purpose, right? I'm learning that as a parent, right? There's, you know, we, I need to get away. You need to get So, won't you go over here and hang out with, with grandma and grandpa for a while while we go to a movie or whatever, right? That's, there's no mission and purpose. I have the mission and purpose in that. And that's the, the, for me and Christy to go over here and get away. And then for him to have fun with grandma and grandpa, there's no real, there's no real mission in that. You see what I'm saying? Some people send their kids away, send them away, right? To like camp all summer or to boarding school or whatever, right? Sent away. God didn't send his son away. 
He said he sent him on a mission. It's, it's the word tied to that word apostle. He said God sent him away with a purpose. He had something for him to do. He said there's a purpose behind me sending you. It's a rescue mission. It's all right there in the language. And he's sending him into a war zone. Think about it. To a world that hates God, the Bible teaches us. A world filled with people that, that need but do not deserve saving. He sent him to, into a world filled with his enemies. That's where God sent his son. And he sent him, as we sang about earlier, in the most helpless of states. The most innocent of states. The mo- the, I mean, in the, as a little baby is how God comes into this world. Into a world full of wicked sinners that hate him. In fact, very early on, if you read the story of Christmas, very early on, Herod is trying to murder Jesus when he's just a couple of years old. He's trying to take him out. It's a very wicked world filled with his enemies. And God sends his son into that world. And not only that, he's saying here, he says he sends his only son. Some translations say his begotten son. It's, it, it's really, it's for, only is a better translation of that. The idea is the uniqueness. The idea is he sent his unique son. There's no one like him. It's like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only. sent his only begotten son. The uniqueness of Jesus. Some say, well, aren't we all sons and daughters of God? No. If, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a son or a daughter of God. But you get that. It's derived from Jesus. Right? It's, it's secondary. Jesus is unique. He's the eternal son of God. He's always been in perfect relationship with God. He is co-equal with God. And because of our relationship with Jesus, we get to be called sons and daughters of God. Apart from that, the Bible says we're enemies of God. No one else like Jesus. This is at the very heart of the greatest story ever told is that God sent His only Son into a world filled with His enemies. Now, we love great stories. It's in our human nature. This weekend, and maybe some of you have already seen it, or this week rather, a movie came out, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. They're still making Star Wars movies, believe it. If you've been kind of detached from culture and you've got what's going on, they're still making Star If you went to sleep 40 years ago and woke up today, guess what? They're still making Star Wars, right? You can still go to Walmart or, or wherever, Target, and the stuff is everywhere, right? You can still buy lightsabers. All that stuff's still going on, right? And so because they, they've understood something, there's always going to be nerds. Yeah, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> I can say that because I've been watching Star Wars this week. All right. So uh, I've went back and rewatched, uh, uh, borrowed and rewatched a couple of the movies already. So I, I'm going to see the movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to see the movie. But why is sto- movie, think about it. Movies like Star Wars, uh, movies like um, Avatar, Titanic, Jurassic Park, Avengers, these are the greatest selling movies of all time. They're the ones that have packed the most theaters. And these movies, at the center of them is good versus evil many times, or sacrificial love, a hero saving the day. One, At least one of those elements is in every best-selling movie of all time. You, you can't find one. Look at the top five. Google it, look it up, whatever, not now, but later. And you'll see the top five movies, and you think about the storyline. Titanic, there's sacrificial love, someone dying for someone else. Sorry to ruin the movie, but um, you had 20 years. All right? Um, think about some of these others. Star Wars, good versus evil. That's an obvious one. A hero. Avatar is 
whole same type thing, hero coming to save this world, um, Jurassic World even, is, is, you got to have a hero, right? you got to have the dude going crazy, riding around on the four-wheeler, killing dinosaurs. you got to have that, right? you got to have the hero. you got to have the good versus evil. In every great movie that we like or that people like, that it, it has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And some, In fact, some of them are, are completely the opposite direction. Some of them even have very much fa- religious falsehoods in them. But at the end of the day, there's either a good versus evil... A hero saving the day or a loving sacrifice. At the heart of every single one of them, people buy tickets and they buy books and they want this because it is in your DNA because you were born into a story. You were born into a story. You were born into the greatest story in the history of the world. None of these stories can trump the story. We forget sometimes to read the Bible as one book and as one story. In the beginning, God, Right? That's that's the best in the beginning. In the beginning, God, right? And he, He creates everything. And He creates a perfect place. And He creates people in His image to be like Him and to rule over His creation and to steward His creation. And then they rebel against Him, right? They turn their back on Him. And we shake our fist at Him. And we decide we want to be God. There's this big... Attempted overthrow, so to speak, as we read the story. All this tension, if you're watching it in a movie, what's going to happen to these people is they reap the consequences for what's happened. And now this perfect world is broken. There's sin and disease and sickness. It's a different place than the way God originally intended it. And people are on this track towards death and towards hell and towards destruction. What's going to happen? And then in the midst of that story, God sends His Son. God Himself becomes a man. And He doesn't just come down to earth and say, Hey, I'm God. He is born into this world. The same way you and I came into the world. Different. He was born of a virgin. But same way. Right? He's born of a woman. And he's a little baby and he needs to be burped and he needs a diaper change and he cries for milk. It was no silent night, all that stuff, sweet songs that we're going to sing tonight, but then they just know it wasn't true. He was a human. Let's not rob Jesus of his humanity. He was a crying, needing to be changed, needing to be burped little baby. That's how God comes into the world to what? To grow up as a man and to go to a cross and pay the debt. And to die for sinners, for enemies, and to turn them into friends and family members. And to be risen from the dead, to defeat the greatest enemy that you could ever think to create. Death. The one everybody succumbs to. And he defeats it. Think about that. That's the greatest story. That is the story underneath every story. And so we go and we create stories, man. Of loving sacrifice and good versus evil and somebody saving the day. And it's because inside of us, inside of us, because we're created in the image of God, we know we are part of a story. And we crave rescue. And we crave, a re- we need a redeemer. There's something inside of us. There's elements of truth that we see in these things. And we need to understand that at the heart of Christmas... There's a story that is the greatest story. And at the center of that is God becoming man. God sending His very Son into the world to rescue us. He says that we might live through Him. That we might have life. You know what that means? We don't have life apart from Him. He sent Him so that we might live through Him. So that means the converse of that is apart from Him we don't have life. We have death. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what was I like before I was a Christian? I was dead. That's my testimony, and that's yours. We were dead apart from Christ. We, we, he came into the Lord so we might live through Him. It says this, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. You know what, one of the things He's driving at there? You can't love God on your own. This story is not about how, you, your testimony is not about how you decided to start loving God one day. It's not that you love God. It's that God loved you. That's the heart of the story. That's where, that's where it begins. Apart from Him, we would never love God. We would never choose God. We needed Him to come to us. That's the heart of Christmas. It's God pursuing us, coming after us, so that we can have relationship with Him. It takes God's love to change us into a people that will love Him. We need rescue that we might live and not walk in spiritual death. That's why John 1, 4 says, In Him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. We need life. Life is in Christ. We sing about this at Christmas. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings. Risen healing in His wings. It's in, our, it's in our stories. It's in what we sing. It's about life and Jesus bringing life. At the very heart of Christmas is God chasing after and pursuing us. And Jesus not being born by happenstance. Just so happened to be born. Just so happens to be the Son of God. No, 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 no. It, it, it's a purpose. It's a mission. It's been in the heart of God for eternity past. Verse 10 reveals to us, though, that Jesus being born wasn't enough. The manger scene is not enough. If we leave Jesus a little baby boy in a manger scene, God's purpose has not been fulfilled yet. There's not only a manger at Christmas, there's a cross. The, the cross cast a huge shadow over the manger at Christmas. He says God sent His Son to die for us. He says to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how we get the life. He says so that He might be the propitiation for our sins. To clearly understand God's love for us, we can't just look at the cradle. We have to look at the cross. This is love. Not that you loved God. In fact, you didn't love God, but He loved you to the point that not that He just sent His Son, but He sent His Son to die for you. And He uses that word propitiation. Not a word that you use around the Christmas tree, probably. Probably not a word you've used at all this week. In fact, probably not a word that outside the Bible you've even heard before. The ESV Study Bible does a great job. Uh, that's why I always recommend that Bible of defining that word for us. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. When he says, God, he's our propitiation, that's at the heart of what he's saying. Theologians have all these debates, but that's at the heart of what he's saying. It's, it's a sacrifice. He provides a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God and turns that wrath from us toward, to favor towards us. This was God's plan for Jesus all along. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. The very heart of the Christmas story says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Why shall I call his name Jesus? 
for he will save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, that was always the plan. In that, in the story of her being pregnant with Jesus and Joseph finding out about this, embedded in that, in his very name, is that he's going to have to die. He's going to have to save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves. That's what it means. It means God saves. And from the very beginning, we see that Jesus was sent to save from what? From our sins. And for that to happen, there would have to be a death. Now, some people would rather Christmas be about the birth of Jesus and not talk about his death. Let's save that for Easter, they say. Or then they, well, let's talk about the resurrection of Easter. That's about his resurrection. And we don't, have, we don't want to celebrate his death. We don't want to look at his death. We don't want to think about his death. But you can't have Christmas and not talk about his death. And you can't have a resurrection without his death. It links everything together is the cross. You can't escape the Christmas story without the cross. And you, can't, you have to understand that, yeah, he's going to come to save his people from their sins, but that's going to require sacrifice. That's going to, and it, that had been in there. That had been in the story. It had been in all the prophecies from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, the Israelites offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, just as God told them to in the law. But this was only a foreshadowing of what was to come because an animal could never be the propitiation, could never take God's wrath and turn it towards favor, towards His people. That role could only be filled by one person and that person had to be both God and man. It had to be an innocent human being, but he had to be God to be able to bear the sins of the world, to be able to bear the wrath of God, to be able to live the sinless life. It had to be someone that was God and someone that's man. God had to come and take on human flesh. This is the way Hebrews 10 says it. Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says, every priest stands daily at his service, talking about the Jewish sacrificial system, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christmas exclaims to us that God loves us and was willing to become a sacrifice. That God demands a sacrifice and in the person of His Son, He fulfills the sacrifices. The Son of God comes and He is the sacrifice for our sins. Maybe you don't feel loved by God. But the cross is proof of God's love. The Bible's teaching us here. It's made manifest among us. There's a written document, a place in time in history where God has proved His love for you. you. Say, you don't know what I've done. Well, Jesus knows what you've done and He came to deliver you from all the things you've done. You say, you don't know who I am. You say, well, Jesus knows who you are. And he came to actually change your identity and to hide your identity in him. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Christ can change one and take the other away. That's the heart of what he did. Jesus came for sinners. You can't get worse off than that. That's all-encompassing of anybody that's broke God's law. Popular sinners and outcast sinners and self-righteous sinners and immoral sinners and rich sinners and poor sinners and church people sinners and atheist sinners. He came for sinners of all types. And He came to rescue them from the plight of their sin and God's wrath. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible teaches us very clearly here in this passage that we have a responsibility with God's love. So we can experience... The change that understanding the story of Christmas brings about when, when, when we're converted. We, we, can, we, can, we, we can be rescued by God's grace through Christ. And, and we, can, we can understand that, that we, we come to live through Him. But we have this responsibility to live out this truth. 
We have a responsibility for what has been done on our behalf and how it's affected us for it to affect how we live and affect how we treat others and affect others. He says in verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. See, He's changed us, but now we have the responsibility to live out the truth. Now that we have experienced God's love in Christ, He says we're to love one another. That's what He started His command with at the beginning of, of our text. But then that brings us to, well, what does it mean to love one another? I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, one husband says, I love you to his wife, and another husband says, I love you to his wife. And one treats his wife one way, and one treats his wife another. What's the standard? One parent says, I love you to a child. Another parent says, I love you to a child. Maybe they treat their kid totally different. What's the standard? What does it mean when we say, I love you? In fact, you've been told, I love you, by various people in your lives, and maybe they've all treated you different ways at different times, and you wouldn't equate their love the same. What's the st- what does it mean to love somebody? What does it mean when he says, you ought to love one another? Well, the standard is the cross. The standard is Jesus. The standard is God's love for us. Listen to what, I'm going to back up. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says this, same book, right? It's a chapter earlier. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What's he saying? He's saying it's not enough for you to tell people you love them and say that means that I love people and that means I've been born again. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's, there's, there's action that backs it up. You say, well, how do I know? Because God's love produced the cross. It produced Jesus coming and dying on our behalf. It had tangible benefit in our life. And he's saying real, genuine Christian love tangibly affects the lives of others. It's not a feeling. It's not, a, it's not just words, but it's, it's deed and it's truth. It involves choices and decisions and time and money. It involves all those things. It affects the way we live and how we treat people and how we serve on behalf of people and what we do. Because that's what it did for Jesus. What did it look like for God to love you? It was sacrificial. There was a price involved. There was pain involved. That's what it looks like to love people. Sometimes there's sacrifice and sometimes there's pain and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes sometimes they're not real lovable. And he said, but that's the standard. It's We don't set the standard. This is not love, not that you've loved God. You don't get to set the standard. You didn't even love God. God set the standard. This is love that He loved you. We don't get to define love. God has defined love. And He did it by manifesting it among us. Jesus being born into the world on a rescue mission and dying for our sins. He says, now that's what love is. Now you go and you love convicting should be (laughs) it is that's love and this is the key to our responsibility as the children of god is understanding that this is what god has called us to this is what i mean there's basic tangible things that we do around here right and these are little things but we have things like a benevolence offering that we can give to and that we can help people with we do a we're doing a lottie moon christmas offering right now and that money 100 percent of it goes to serve church planners and help people that that don't have a lot of funding and don't have a lot of help in fact, our International Mission Board has, has had to cut some things. To live within their means, they've had to cut some things. They've had to, do, they've had to make some major cuts and cuts back on their budget because they don't have as much money as they'd like to have to, to do the mission. 
That's just tangible ways. One way. That's not, I mean, we can't write a check and say, oh, well, there, see, I've proven I love you. No, that's not the point. The point is there, there are just tangible things that we can sow into our lives. Financially, and the way we serve people, the way we love people, the way we listen to people, the way we reach out to people and serve people. And this is what he says. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us. In other words, it's the proof, right, that God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. What's he driving at? See, he says, people can't see God. That's what he says. He says, nobody's ever seen God. We would die if we looked at God in all of His holiness. We would just die. Nope. People, we, we can't look at the Father in all His glory. And he says, but people can't see God, but they can see you love them with the love God has put in your heart. That's how we show people the reality and the truth of God. That God abides in us. See, our love for one another points people past us to the reality of the God that loves us. You know, when if you were to go, um, if you were to be at our house last night and, and you were to see Eden in her pajamas, and you would have seen little ballet slippers all over those pajamas. It's not because Eden loves ballet. She don't know what ballet is. It's because she's got a mama that loves ballet and has put her in ballet slipper pajamas, right? And the same thing can be said when you see Cannon walk around with a big script A in red and white on his shirt. It, he doesn't know, you know? If I was a horrible father, I could have raised him another way. But I'm just kidding. But, but the point is this. It's not a reflection of their children. We don't, we, we don't look at Eden's ballet and go, well, that girl, she's probably good at ballet. She loves ballet. She's one, right? We, we go, well... One of y'all likes ballet. It's not this guy. One of y'all likes ballet. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's Christian. Same way with the other stuff. And when people see the way we love one another and the way we love people, they don't, they, they know it points past, it's supposed to be the kind of love that points past just human nature. And it points somewhere else. They go, I know that didn't just spring from you because it doesn't just spring from me. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the God you cannot see who has loved me and expressed that in the cross. And that love has changed me into a more loving person. You know, the reason we're able to love like this, he says, is because God abides in us. He says, it's proof that God abides in you. That's where this love comes from. Jesus is... That passage I read to you, Matthew 1, let me read the rest of it. Just pick it up in verse 22. After it says his name will be called Jesus and he'll take away their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we celebrate Christmas. God with us. God became a man. He walked among us. But Christmas is not about God became with us and he went away from us and he's not with us anymore. He's still with us. He's still Emmanuel. He, right, Jesus actually said, it's better for you if I go back to the Father. If I go back to the Father, because I'm going to send the Helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's still with us. He has sent his very Spirit, the Spirit of God himself. The Holy Spirit is with us and abides in us. God abides in us. The Spirit of Christ. The story of Christmas is more than God just came to be with us and He's left us. No, no, no. He came to be with us and He's still with us. And He resides in us as believers in Christ. And He empowers us to love like Christ's love. Not that we reach to the full maximum. We're growing, we're pursuing, we're aiming for Christ's likeness. We're not there yet. But the point is, He's changed us and the supernatural ability to live differently, to, to, to love differently, all those things come from the indwelling Spirit. And when we love one another, He says, God's love's perfected in us. Is that, God's love not already perfect? Is it, 
Well, it means completed in the Greek. He's saying the purpose for which God's love, the mission for which of God's love, it's completed when we love one another. In other words, God's love was never meant to stop with you. It was never meant to be, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe God loves me and that Jesus died for me and I received that into my life. Roll the credits. It was never meant to be that way. I received that into my life and now I go and I love and I live differently and we love one another. And he says when that happens, that's when the mission is completed. That's when God's love is perfected. That's when it runs its course. You see, we love like that because we're loved. The gospel of Jesus makes it so that the loved now love. The forgiven now forgive. Those that have received God's generosity are now becoming more generous. Those that have been shown compassion are now becoming more compassionate. The gospel changes us to be more like Christ and to reflect the gospel that saves us. The gospel produces this in us through the power of the Spirit. See, this Christmas, as we're thinking on the birth of Christ, I want us to remember that it wasn't an accident or happenstance, but this was God's purpose. He sent As John tells us twice, God sent His Son here on a mission to die for us. And that's what love is. Christmas is a yearly reminder, yes, of that, that God loves us. But it's also a reminder that if He's loved us and we've received that love, that we are to love one another. We are to continue that love. You know, many times it's easy for us to make excuses for people that make poor choices with maybe their life. Like we look at someone and we say, you know, they make really bad financial decisions. And we say, well, you don't know. They never had money. They never grew up around it. They never was taught. Nobody ever taught them how to manage money. And so now they don't manage money. Well, we make that, you know, in which valid. Or we say, you know, they, they, they do this, but you don't know this home life they grew up in. We make, we make, when we always make these connections sometimes, it's easy for us. Because sometimes there are some valid things that lead people down wrong paths. But for the Christian... There's no excuse that we can point to for why we don't love Him. Because our Father sent His Son to die for us. There's no, there's no neglect. There, 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 there's, no, there's no thing that you can look back on and go, well, they're a Christian and they're not very loving. In fact, they're downright hateful. But if you don't know... No, no, no. I do know their Father. And I do know what He's done on their behalf. We do know. There's nothing we can point the finger at. The finger comes right back at us. And our responsibility... To live out the love that we've experienced. So this Christmas, as we think about how loved we are, let's ask ourselves, am I growing and maturing to be be more loving towards others? Like someone who's radically... Am I living like someone who's radically loved by God? You understand that? Do I live like someone who's radically loved by God? Do I radically love others? It's a convicting statement. Does my love for God's people and for others demonstrate the experience that I've had in the gospel? So how can we as a church better demonstrate that love of God in one another? Be asking yourself that over the next couple of weeks. You know, church advertising is fine. We do that. But the best advertising that a church can do can't be bought or generically produced. It's when the love of God in Christ fills our heart and you become a more loving person. And we become this community of love. He says love one another. It's reciprocal. That's the power behind it. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by this. And then he didn't say by your bumper sticker or your Jesus fish or your quiet times 
or where you go to church or the nominational name that's on the door. He didn't say they'll love you by your, you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by whether you're a Republican or a Democrat and your political stances and how passionate you are about that. He didn't say they'll know you're my disciples by, you know, you tell them you're my disciples. He didn't say they'll love you, my disciples, by the size check you write to the church or to, to a mission field person or nothing. He didn't give any, he says they'll love you, you're my disciples by your love. It is the most powerful apologetic in the world for the church and probably the most neglected. It's the only thing that Jesus clearly said, this is the identifying mark to the world that you're my people. How you love one another. It's the only thing. And we can go and we can do tracks and we can do this and we can be passionate about this and we can march in the streets. But at the end of the day, if people don't look at the community of faith and say there's radical love there, then we've missed the main thing that Jesus wants to use as the main marketing tool for the world, for lack of a better term. Is our love for one another. So, have you been changed by God's love this morning? Has the message of Christmas, so to speak, changed your life? Is, is it a nice story, or is the message of God's Son coming into the world to redeem sinners, has it gripped your heart? Has there been a time in your life where you've received Him? To all those received Him, John tells us, He gave the right to become children of God. Have you received Him? Have you by faith placed your faith not in your good works, not in what you can do, not in anything other than Jesus and His death and His burial and His resurrection on your behalf? Have your sins been taken away? Have you trusted in Him as the propitiation, as the one who takes God's wrath and turns it towards favor? Have you experienced that by faith in Christ? If you're a believer today, are we striving to live like people that have been rescued by God? Or are we living as though we're radically loved by God? He radically loves us, and that's how we are to love one another. How can we grow in that? How can we mature in that? How can we better yield to the Holy Spirit who's given it to us, who abides in us, and what the love and the, and the faith and the joy and all those things that He wants to produce in our lives? How can you do that? As you think, as you come to the end of this year and you get ready to move towards next year, how can you better live out the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Yield to the Spirit of God in your life. None of, none of us are where we need to be. When we, you read First John, and man, none of us are where we need to be. Right? Where we, where we, where not, none of us have fully attained, as we've seen in Philippians, as Paul talks about. None of us are completely there yet. There's a place that we all should be, right? And that, that, but we're, we're all still growing in this. And even if you're a long-time Christian who loves Jesus with all his heart and you love his people... There's ways that we can grow and mature in that. I know there is for me. I hope there is for you as well. So this Christmas season, as you're reflecting on Christ's love, and I want you to do that, also reflect on how can I show that love to others.